Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tours from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 17 of Bike Tour Adventures, I'm talking with Tristan Ridley, an English adventurer that's embarked on a massive undertaking of cycling 100,000 kilometers through 100 countries over six continents. Now, nearly three years later, Tristan has cycled 50,000 kilometers and cycled through 58 countries. What originally started as a planned three-month tour in New Zealand grew into an epic adventure. Unlike many bike tourists, Tristan is using a bike packing setup, which allows him to really get off the beaten path and explore the hard-to-reach spots along the way. Throughout this bike tour, Tristan is fundraising for Build Africa, wanting to support the development of schools in disadvantaged regions in Kenya and Uganda. If you want to learn more about Tristan, you can check out his website at www.tristanridley.com. And you can also follow him on Facebook and Instagram by searching his name or following the links, which will be attached in the article I post on my site. Having just arrived in Brazil, Tristan and I have finally had a chance to catch up. Tristan, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Chris. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves just so people know who you are? Yeah, I mean, I haven't got any kind of real cycling background or even, to be honest, much of an adventure background. Uh, I'm from the southeast of England, which is pretty vanilla, and I had a pretty kind of normal sort of childhood. I um, went to college, went to university, and I finished studying with a fairly useless degree in politics and philosophy. And pretty much as soon as I graduated, I started traveling, initially not with a bicycle. So I, didn't, I wasn't a cyclist at all. So I was just kind of backpacking around Europe. And then I got enough money together from working to fly out to Australia, mm-hmm. where I did sort of two years on a working visa, just traveling and working, just kind of hitchhiking around mostly, buses, and that for me was sort of the introduction into kind of outdoor living, because I'd never done, I'd never wild camp before, I'd done a little bit of hiking, but not much, and I started this idea of just suddenly living on the road, being able to just pitch a tent, or initially not even a tent, just, you know, sleeping under the stars, Mm -hmm. and I just fell in love with this idea that actually you're completely free if you're not tethered to accommodation, if you don't always require a hostel or a hotel or at least someone that will let you crash on their couch. And that was that was sort of the start for me, just this idea that I could actually travel and stop wherever I wanted and be much more 
free and independent than I had been prior to that. So I've been hitchhiking for say nearly two years around Australia, got a lot of miles um, by thumb, but I was sort of frustrated towards the end with kind of the limitations of hitchhiking. And as much as I love it, you're, there are definitely times when I felt like there were places I wanted to go, but hitchhiking wasn't a great way to get there because often they were very remote roads or... A good example I use, if you're in, in the car and you see, mm-hmm. I don't know, a waterfall or some something that interests you off to the side of the road um, and you think, okay, I'd love to go and check that out, I'd love to see what, what is there, but if to, to do that you've got to get out of the car, you're probably going to have to walk, could be hours to get there, there might be nothing there, and then you've got to walk back, get another lift and it could end up taking the best part of the day. And so more often than not, you just kind of get your head down and you, you stay in the car and, and you miss it. Right. So I was looking for something that gave me more control, more freedom, and more kind of self-reliance as well. Because obviously hitchhiking, you're always reliant on someone giving you a lift. It's great because you have a lot of spontaneous adventures. You meet a lot of cool people, mm-hmm. but you're always relying on them as well. You don't have complete freedom over where you go. So I sort of started with bike touring just... Um, I, I'd, I'd read some books from people that had done bike adventures and I said I'd not cycled at all myself for, for more than a decade prior to that mm-hmm. so I got hold of a, a rubbish second hand mountain bike and I my first ever bike trip was an absolute complete bloody disaster I had this grand idea I was working in northern Australia and I had this plan to take a day off and cycle I don't know 25 kilometers or so south Okay. Climb a mountain, climb back down, and then cycle home. And I thought that sounded like a, a fairly fun way to sort of start. But I didn't realize at the time, I so said I knew absolutely nothing about bikes. I didn't know just how utterly crap this bike that I bought was. <laughs> so, And I also hadn't done any cycling in a decade. So I made it the 25K. I was absolutely done, utterly done by the time I'd even got to the mountain. Sort of pulled myself, crawled up the mountain had a little nap for two hours at the top, passed out more or less, and then crawled back down and just about somehow made it back. And I had to literally crawl back up the stairs to my apartment. And I was limping for a good week afterwards. And I sort of immediately ab- abandoned the idea of bike touring as just kind of an exercise in masochism following <laughs> this little misadventure. It just I, I thought, well, why on, earth, why on earth would anyone do this? There's nothing that's fun about this. It's just complete self destruction, there's nothing good about this. So I gave up and um, carried on with my life. And uh, a few months later, I think selective amnesia is quite a useful trait for any aspiring adventurers. And by this this point, a few months later, I'd forgotten about the whole pain and misery of that first attempt. And I tried again in a a different place with a slightly less rubbish bike and actually really enjoyed it uh, when I wasn't, you know, torturing myself. I found actually I, I loved the the whole experience of it. I only went. It was only a weekend trip, really. But I just loved. I loved the fact that I was totally free. I could stop whenever I wanted. I go at my own pace. Wild camping. I just. I really loved it. So that was pretty much it. That was the extent of my preparations. Was was one failure and one success in terms of bike trips. And uh, I guess they call that the type two adventure, right? Where we're like we're slight masochists. We take the pain and then we say <laughs> we're never going to do this again. And then next thing you know, you are. Yeah, it's it's something I feel like I'm constantly battling. I mean, I I've, I always swore that the reason I wanted to travel in the first place was not to put myself through these kind of extreme physical or mental challenges. I mean, I still 
say when asked what well, the reason I'm traveling is not for that reason it's to have an adventure it's to enjoy my life it's to see amazing places to get lots of good stories and none of none of my original motivations for traveling are actually that kind of type 2 side of it the more kind mm -hmm. of pushing yourself physically and mentally uh, aspect but in fact despite that I mean I've done a hell of a lot of that now and I'm, I'm constantly trying to stop myself from doing these things but I suppose I'm the kind of person that I keep well pushing myself into these situations and then regretting them until a bit later and then you think okay it was it was worth it yeah but yeah I think that's tough to avoid on a long trip you are going to get into those situations where you find yourself really having to push to keep going it definitely happens so from Australia, you then then you cycled New Zealand, and that was meant to be your first bike tour, is it? Is that how it was laid out? Yeah, more or less. So I mean, I I I guess I'm sort of a deep end type of person, so I didn't really muck around. I got after this one successful trip, I decided to go all out. So I bought a, a decent touring bike and some equipment, and I booked a one-way flight into New Zealand. Okay. My idea initially was to just spend three three four months in New Zealand, just touring around. And then after that, I thought, we'll see how we go. I had this sort of vague idea that if I enjoyed it and that if it worked, I would try cycling back to the UK where I'm from. Sweet. And I thought, I'll just see how I go with the three months first. But that all fell to pieces pretty much immediately before I'd even got to New Zealand because at the airport in Australia flying in the Gold Coast, I turned up a little bit late and I was told that I wouldn't actually be allowed. I would not be allowed into New Zealand without an exit flight, which I didn't oh. know until I got there. So I was very late, and I had to pretty much book a flight in ten minutes before I was going to miss the damn flight to to New Zealand. And I had sort of vaguely glanced at a map, and I sort of initially my idea was to try and get back to the UK without flying, to try and do it by by land and sea. Okay. But I knew I, I knew I was going to have to probably fly out of New Zealand anyway because it was cyclone season at the time and boats were going to be very expensive. But I'd kind of looked at the map and I was trying to find the closest sort of reasonable place to, to start cycling from because I didn't I, the nearest place would have been Australia but I'd already spent two years there so mm -hmm. I didn't want to go back there. And the nearest places are sort of tiny islands like Fiji where you know you're, if you fly there you're going to have to fly out anyway. Yeah, East Timor. So the yeah, exactly. Um, the easiest thing would have, I mean, definitely the easiest thing would have been just to fly straight to Singapore, because from there, obviously, you can just ride up through to Southeast Asia, and then you're kind of on the main Eurasian landmass, but um, it seemed a bit too much flying, so I ended up deciding, I just sort of glanced at a map, and the nearest big bit was Papua New Guinea. Okay. Um, so I just glanced at the map, and I knew the west half of the island was West Papua, Indonesia. And I thought there's bound to be boats, you know, going through Indonesia, through the archipelago to get you to Java and then Singapore. So I thought that should be pretty doable. So I booked a flight from New Zealand, uh, from Auckland to Port Moresby, the capital of Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And that was about the extent of my planning. I just had to book the flight and then jump on the plane. And I then had my three months in New Zealand, which is, you know, was, was fantastic. It's an amazing country, I really think. At the time, I don't think I fully appreciated it, to be honest with you, because I would just come from a couple of years in Australia, and at the time, I really wanted something more kind of culturally interesting to me, something more different to the sort of Western culture where I'd spent a fair bit of time already. 
So at the time I was kind of thinking, yeah, it's beautiful and it's easy and it's it's amazing, but I wanted the kind of more exotic. But actually having now spent a lot, well, a fair bit of time in those kind of countries, in hindsight, I think New Zealand is almost the perfect bike touring destination. Really? Huh? It's just amazing. It's it's got everything. It's it's got mountains, it's got beaches, rivers, wild camping is incredible. Bike shops are easily accessible, and you know traffic's not too bad. There's good roads. There's good off-road options as well. It's just an adventure playground. The people are amazing. Uh, so yeah, New Zealand, New Zealand's awesome. But anyway, so I had my three months, and during that time, I'd sort of started researching Papua New Guinea a little bit, and I started to kind of panic a little bit because it's it's not quite as easy as I first assumed to uh, take a bike into <clears throat> Papua New Guinea okay. and then get across to the west side. Um, my sort of, I'd, I'd glanced at the map and Port Moresby is in the south of the island um, and the, the west side being Papua New, uh, West Papua, I thought I should just be able to, there's bound to be a way to just you know cross, cycle west and get into Indonesia. But as it turns out, it's not quite that simple because Port Moresby is pretty much isolated on the south of the island. There's a big mountain range called the New Guinea Highlands which runs right across the middle of the island and it's completely impassable by, well, by, certainly by car. There is a hiking trail called the Kokoda Trail which runs across the middle uh, which is, uh, I mean, you could you could carry a bike through but um, it's these days it's very expensive to walk it. You need permits, guides, um, it's, 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 you're looking at probably about a thousand US to do it properly, oh, wow, okay. which is more than I really could could afford to do. Um, and I got into the country, um, didn't get a lot of encouragement from the people I met there because it is quite dangerous in Papua New Guinea. They have a lot of issues with banditry, and uh, you know kidnappings, murders. They do happen, unfortunately, quite regularly in the country. It's it's an amazing country, but it's not a particularly safe one. Okay. Um, so I was told by basically everyone there that my best bet was going to be to fly to the north of the island from where there'd be roads kind of running west. So um, I didn't want to fly again because that was kind of the whole point was to not have to do that. So I eventually managed to find um, a potential route that kind of went along the south coast uh, to a small village where I'd been told there'd be a boat leading around to the east side where I've been told there'd be another boat, like it was going to be several boats basically popping around the Eastern Cape to get around to the north. Um, so I decided to go for it. Didn't work out quite that easily. I um, I ended up making it to the end but came down with dengue fever, okay. which pretty much knocked me out for about a week. Um, uh, luckily I was taken in by a, a local family. I mean this is very much sort of the middle of nowhere, so I, there's no, you know, uh, hospitals or hotels or anything like that. It's purely, you know, it's just a tiny fishing village. But um, yeah, a local family took me in. They gave me a place to crash for the week while I kind of slowly became human again. And eventually, they helped me find a boat around to the coast, um, where again, the boat that I'd been told that was going to be going around the coast, it turned out it hadn't existed for about four years. So I then <laughs> had to um, figure out another option. So again, just I local guy that I met, he gave me a place to stay and uh, helped me organize a boat. So I had about a week's wait for the boat and then that boat got through about halfway. So then I had to cycle a bit further, got another boat that nearly sank and that eventually got me around to the coast, uh, to the north and from there I was able to like eventually make my way over to the western side um, into Indonesia and then from there it was much easier. I could just get a boat. It was about a one week long ferry that took me into Java 
okay. Surabaya. And yeah. then from there, it was a pretty easy ride just to Jakarta and then another ferry up to Singapore. Did you end up riding at all in Papua, like, or just a bit? No, I did I did a fair bit of riding there. There are a few sections uh, that I was able to ride. Yeah, I think in total it was, let's see, something like nine boats that I had to take in Papua New Guinea to get around. Damn. Um, most, most of them sort of 12, 13 hours or so. One of them was about 36 hours. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, I can't recommend Papua New Guinea as a cycling destination. It's um, certainly the bike was more of a hindrance than it was a, a boon in, in Papua New Guinea. And there, there were one or two places where I had a few sketchy situations because I was on a bicycle, like in the, in the middle of nowhere, there's, there's no one around. And yeah, I had, I had one unfortunate situation where I had a narrow escape from a, a gang of guys who were chasing me with machetes, which wasn't much fun. Yeah, but um, yeah, I was quite lucky to get away. Well, I have to say, just... Despite all of that, like Papua New Guinea is, is an unbelievable country, and I think it probably has, to me, it has probably the nicest people in the world there. It's just oh, yeah. incredible. The, oh. the, just, the, the warmth and generosity of the people there is just unbelievable. It's just uh, some rotten eggs within it that spoil it. Yeah, I think it's the same anywhere. I mean, everywhere has that you know, 0.1% of the population who aren't maybe the nicest people in the world. And in most countries, those those... Those, that tiny minority is, is kept in check by police or army or whatever kind of security there is. But in Papua New Guinea, in a lot of places, unfortunately, there isn't that control. Okay. So those people can do a little bit more. But I don't think it's a massively unsafe country. And there are plenty of places that are perfectly safe. It's just that if you're obviously crossing it on a bicycle, you're going to run through certain areas where it is a little bit less, uh, less comfortable. True. What, uh, what kind of bike are you using? So at the time, I was riding a pretty normal touring bike. It was a Surly Long Haul Trucker, which is the sort of oh, default yeah. generic touring bike that a lot of people start out with. Um, great bike. Um, it, it did me great. Got me back to England. Um, no problems at all. And I, yeah, I think it was it was great. Um, I'm now riding a, a different bike. Since uh, after my first year, I switched to a Surly ECR, mm-hmm. which is a, um, a sort of 29-plus mid-fat bike with... Uh, enormous three-inch wide wagon wheel tires and sort of switched to, as I said, a more bikepacking oriented setup because I found through my first year, I found more and more that the most fun I was having was those off-road sections where I could really get off the beaten track and start exploring the backcountry. And I, I found that's where I was happiest, where I could be miles away from the tarmac and just really out there in the wild and Although it's not that it's not possible to do that on a normal bike, it's just that at a certain point, if you're getting the crap kicked out of you by the bike, you know, if it's very rough and your bike is just really, you know, you're really getting jarred constantly, at a certain point it just sucks the fun out of it and then it becomes, as you said, that type 2 fun where you're doing it but you're not really, you're just, it's more of a pain trip. Um, and I say that's all fine and good and I've done more of that than <clears> I wanted to to do but I feel like for me if I can be in those same places and actually be enjoying it and be comfortable which I can now on this this much much more off-road centric bike then it just it just boosts the fun factor up a lot nice. and it definitely lets me ride things I couldn't otherwise how did that uh, how did it change with regards to your equipment and gear you were carrying when you did a changeover from touring to bikepacking for me, it was fairly gradual. I mean, I started out with a lot more stuff. I think a lot of people, when they start, they go very heavy yeah. or they take a lot more things than they need. I mean, I just, especially for me, I just 
just come from hitchhiking and I was traveling you know, with a, a 20 liter backpack and that was it. That was everything I had. That was tent, sleeping bag. So I was extremely light and it was very space difficult in a way. Was, I had to really struggle to fit everything in. So I went from that to bike touring. I think I went a little bit mad with it with suddenly having four panniers and a rack. <laughs> and suddenly I could take as much as I wanted. But I realized very quickly, I mean, within, within a couple of months, I was already thinking, well, this is ridiculous. I don't need four panniers. I don't know what I'm even putting in them. So I, I, I ditched two of the front panniers when I got to Malaysia. I sent them back. And then I, for the rest of that first year, I was riding with just two rear panniers, which was better. Again, I felt like panniers, panniers are great in a way because they're very accessible. They make, you know, taking them on and off the bike and packing is very easy. So they, they're great. Um, the, the only problem I have with them is, again, when you're riding very much off-road on very rough trails, they, they rattle around a lot and they don't, the weight distribution isn't great. You sort of feel them. And if you're having to push your bike as well, they're a bit of a nuisance where they kind of get in the way of your legs. Um, so, I mean, I, I was already packing pretty light when I was still using two panniers. I didn't have much stuff. I mean, my whole last few months... I mean, I was coming back through Central Asia, um, you know, Eastern Europe in the winter. I was trying to get back for Christmas to surprise my family. And I mean, pretty much one entire pannier was loaded up with, with, with Christmas presents from the Silk Road. Nice. Um, so I was, I was really just kind of packing one pannier in a rack that was, and a handlebar bag. That was all I needed. So for me, it wasn't a big jump at all to, to switch to the more kind of streamlined setup. Um, I, I didn't feel like I was having to make a big push. I think a lot of it comes down to just just cutting down on the stuff you don't really need. My I guess my sort of philosophy on it has been if you with any given thing, with any item that you're carrying, if it has to for me it has to be something that either I literally use it every day. So, you know, something like your tent or your sleeping bag. For me, if I'm not using it every day, then the question I ask is if I'm okay, I'm not using it every day, but when I do use it, is it absolutely essential? So, I mean, something like, uh, say, a water filter, uh, or I use a, like a SteriPen, something like that. I'm not using that every day, but when I do need it, it is, it is crucial. It's, it's something that's, that's really important. So something like that, or, or like a head torch, for example, I'm not necessarily using that every day, but, you know, it's, it's vital. But then, you've, then you look at other stuff, um, I mean, like an extra pair of clothes, you know, over your extra pair of clothes, a third pair, for example, of clothes, you know, do you really need it? Would it what what would actually happen? You know, what would happen to your day-to-day -day life if you didn't have that thing? You know, would it really be that big of an inconvenience, or would it actually be fine? Um, and I think with a lot of stuff that people carry, the answer, to be honest, is actually you'd 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 notice it for the first day, and then you know the first time, and then you'd very quickly adapt, and you wouldn't miss it at all. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah, traveling light is just. It makes everything better, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it lets you push a lot harder. It makes the riding more comfortable. It means if you ever need to lift your bike over a fence, you can actually do that yeah. instead of having to unload the whole thing and then do it. And certainly for the more challenging routes, it makes life so much easier. Especially when uh, you're going through Sweden and stuff, with their they have those like walkover fence rails. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I had to. Carry my bike over a few, yeah. Yeah, I did a bit of a mountain bike tour in uh, in southern Sweden where I was living for a year, and oh my God, there were uh, a lot of those things. But yeah, it was nice. It's beautiful down there. It's so Sweden. The Scandinavia is another part of the world I'd say is really bike touring mecca. It's um, I mean the the the, the law that they have there, this uh, Alemanthreten, which is this yeah the 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 everyman right, the right to wild camp. 
Freed into Rome is just beautiful. Isn't that um, an amazing more... thing? It's just like, how, how does yeah. no, no other country have this? Like, how do we not have this in the UK and Canada? And, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, I think it has a lot to do with population density because, I mean, a lot of Scandinavia is quite sparsely populated. So is Canada. So they can sort... <laughs> Canada, Canada, I definitely agree with you. Um, it, it seems really ridiculous that you guys don't have it there. England, um, the north of England, yes, yeah, certainly. In, in the south, it's so densely populated. So I don't think... Even, I think even if you had that rule, it wouldn't do you much good because you do still need to be, I think, I'm not sure what it is, 100 meters from someone's house, I yeah. think it is, is yeah, the rule. Something like that, and that would be a challenge in the UK anyway, just to find somewhere that's not next to someone's house. But Scotland, Scotland does have it; they have the the right to to camp. Oh, do they? They do. Okay. Yeah, Scotland, Scotland has it, and a lot of a lot of the Baltics as well, Estonia, um, Latvia, Lithuania, and I think I'm not sure about Poland, but northern uh, northern Europe, a lot of them they okay. do let you also wild camp. What's your favorite piece of equipment other than your bike? Oof. I don't know. That's difficult. I mean, aside from the obvious, like I mean, I think a tent is just a game changer. I mean, I, I don't. I think most people do travel if they're traveling by bike with a tent. But I think it's sort of one of those things that if you've never traveled with a tent, not necessarily just by bicycle, but any any way that you're traveling, whether you're backpacking or you know driving in a car, like just just having having a portable home, just mm -hmm. completely changes the way that you can travel because it means that you're not always tethered to towns, you know, you're not always having to think, okay, well, I've got to make sure I end the night somewhere with people so I can find a house or somewhere, a yeah. bed or something to sleep in. So, I mean, the tent is huge. Are you missing your tarp tent? <laughs> it was good. It was, uh, that was, that was beautiful. The, my, this, yeah, this wonderful tarp tent moment. I have the rainbow, so it's, um, yeah, it's uh, a, like a one and a half man. I like it. I, I, I actually got one of those for my dad. Um, a rainbow. They're great tents. Yeah, they're they're brilliant. They're, they they make really good tents, and they're they're very good value. Yeah, I was I would happily recommend a tarp tent. So I'm now switched because my poor beloved tarp tent, after a year and a half, nearly a year in Africa, and Af Africa is just a, a fantastic way to shred any equipment that you've got. It is just it? destroys. It's unbelievable. It just destroys kit. So yeah, it finally um, gave up the ghost when I was down in Namibia. And uh, I've I've now got a uh, a much more conventional um, gone for an MSR Hubba Hubba, okay, yep. which is uh, obviously very widely widely. It's the it's the surly long haul trucker of tents. That's <laughs> what everybody's it got. Really, it, it really is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'll be nice to have a little bit more space. I think. Yeah. So I saw you have aero bars. Tell me that. Um, how how handy do they come in? And uh, is it something you would you recommend? Aero bars are one of those things that aren't very widely used in bike touring circles. And I, I I guess I think a big part of the reason they haven't been more widely adopted, I think, is probably a lot actually just down to the ubiquity of handlebar bags. Because a lot of um, most people that do tour on bikes, they do have a handlebar bag up front because mm -hmm. they're so useful for carrying kind of essentials that you can quickly grab off the bike. Um, and that, that, as great as they are, they do obviously limit you in terms of aero bars because they go exactly where you'd need to put your aero bars. Yeah. Um, so I think on a practical level, that's probably a, a lot to do with it because most people are still do, uh, using that setup. But I think if, if that wasn't a factor, I think a lot more people probably would be using them because, I mean, for me, they're just... I absolutely love them. Um, I mean, for me, I have... Because I, I, I ride mixed terrain, so I ride off-road when I can, but you know, on such a long trip, I'm going to end up with, with a lot of miles to do on pavement as well. 
And I and I did see that it helps you read your your Kindle while you're on the Eurobars. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's not something I'd necessarily recommend. <laughs> but yeah, it uh, it is possible to read a book while sitting in aero position if you're riding a road that's straight enough <laughs> with a with a little bit of uh, well with low traffic. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say let's try that one at home. But no, it's the the aero bars are just are just wonderful. You know, get them set up comfortably, not very low I wouldn't I wouldn't go from I have mine set up fairly yeah, high so high. not like a sort of a road racing try setup but more of a, a high aero position um, and it's just so comfortable I can sit in that position all day long it just yeah. uh, it takes it takes that weight off your arms and just lets you relax your shoulders and stuff a bit yeah. more right rather than yeah your I wrists. mean yeah it gives you that it gives you a different position it gives you more forward so you're lower so you actually gain a little bit of speed as well because you're more aerodynamic but it's, I don't know, for me, it's just from day one, I just found it so comfortable. And, um, yeah, I mean, even actually off-road, as long as it's not a very rough dirt road, you know, I have, again, I have mine set slightly wider than you would for a tri setup, which gives you a little bit more control if the terrain is a little bit rough. So okay. even on dirt even on dirt roads, I can happily sit in that on aero, in aero position for hours. And, um, yeah, I, I absolutely love it. It's just, it's just so comfortable. And um, yeah, I mean, for me now, I just have a, I, I don't have a, a lot of people that tour want, you know, worry about hand positions because obviously you put pressure on your, on your hands in different places so you can get numb and it's uncomfortable. With the aero bars, it just completely eliminates that, that, that factor. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, I never thought So yeah, it's, I, yeah, massively would recommend trying aero bars for touring as long as you can get away with it. As I say, if you're, um, if you're, Putting a handlebar bag up front, you just straight up can't really get aero bars on there because the handlebar bag will block it. But if you're going for more like a handlebar roll, kind of you know, more of a bike packing type thing, or if you just aren't using a handlebar bag, then yeah, massively recommend aero bars. Awesome. So you started the European part of your tour, or European Europe, uh, Middle East, and Africa after taking mm. a, a hiatus from riding, right? Yeah, so I had my first year, which was uh, so from Singapore, I went up through Southeast Asia, through Laos, China, Tibet, and then Northwest China, Xinjiang, Central Asia, um, and I was coming back, say, through winter, so I came back through the Caucasus, Turkey, and Eastern Europe, and back to the UK, and I got I got back, and I was completely broke, because I'd, um, I'd just been going off savings from when I was in Australia, and I was completely broke when I got back, so I had no choice. Obviously, I was going to have to work either way. But actually, my initial when I when I got back, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of sworn to myself that I was done with with bike touring, because my last couple of months <laughs> were, I mean, definitely type two type two fun. Yeah, I mean, miserable type two fun, difficult to 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 sort of distinguish sometimes. But yeah, it was it was very tough because I was riding big miles. I was trying to get back in time for Christmas, so I was doing sort of. 150, 160 kilometers a day for months at a time. I was riding through the kind of Eastern European winter, and I mean, obviously, I mean, I don't want to go on about cold. You're from Canada, so you'll laugh at me when I tell you it was only sort of minus 10 at night, which isn't really cold by your standards. To, to tell you the truth, uh, Tristan, I've spent the, I think most of the last 15 years living abroad. Only a few of them were in Russia, but then the rest was all Asia. So seven years in Malaysia, I'm not loving the cold. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, I think it's it's interesting. Cold is is in a way it's almost not that relevant how cold it is. It's much more relevant how cold it is yeah. in relation to your equipment because you can be Absolutely. you can be toasty and warm at minus twenty if you have the right the right gear for it, or you can be freezing cold at minus one. 
And in my case, yeah, my, my equipment was rubbish. Um, I was using a sleeping bag that was about 50 years old, and by that point, I'd lost most of its down. Um, yeah, so I was sort of shivering my way through Eastern Europe and a lot of big miles. So by the time I got back, I just pretty much promised myself that I was done and that I was going to, I don't know, probably keep traveling, but maybe go back to hitchhiking again or something. But, I mean, this selective amnesia thing, as I said, is a curse. You, within, a, within a few weeks, I'd already started thinking, oh, okay, I kind <clears> of <throat> do miss <throat> cycling. I kind of want to be back on the bike. So, um, yeah, I sort of started planning and eventually decided um, over a few too many beers that I was going to go out again. And because I'd already done this fairly big trip, it, the first year, sort of 13 months, was, I think, 25,000 Ks in 25 countries. And I sort of yeah. knew that I could do that. So I thought, if I'm going to go again, I've got to go bigger. And that kind of, this whole 100,000 kilometer, oh, 100 country okay. thing sort of grew out of that. I kind of, I sort of liked the symmetry. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I sort of looked at the, the map and I roughly worked out distances. I sort of had this idea that I wanted to, I'd, I thought I, the next continent to do from here is, is it going to be Africa? Because it's sort of there and I'd never been to Africa before. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll do, I'll, I'll cycle to Cape Town, and then I thought, well, from there, the logical place to go is South America because it's right there, and then, you know, do kind of the Americas. And, um, and then I thought, well, if I'm in North America up there, then I might as well go back through Asia again and sort of complete the loop back to the UK. And I sort of looked at the distances, and I worked out that it was going to probably come to something like 100,000 kilometers um, if I did that trip, in, a, in addition to the 25 I'd already done. So I just thought, yeah, this, so I sort of, yeah, rather foolhardily went for it. Um, and trouble with telling anyone once you've if you once you've told your friends that you're planning on doing something silly, um, you're you're stuck because once like any any good friends will hound you, you never they won't let down, you go. Yeah. They'll keep reminding <clears throat> you that you said you they, they'll, they'll you know just keep on you. So you're kind of stuck doing it. So yeah, so I was sort of stuck, <laughs> and um, I mean willingly stuck, I should say. Um, so I worked in the UK for um, it was mm-hmm. uh, I think a year and three months or so. Just to um, just kind of you know saving up every penny that I could, living as cheaply as I could, um, living as boringly as I could, really, to try and save as much up. And then yeah, so April <coughs> last year, uh, 2018, I, I set off, and um, I first went up as I say to Scandinavia because yeah. I'd always wanted to go to Norway and Sweden. So I spent a few months riding around. And you went all the way to the North Cape, right? I didn't go as far as Nordcap, no. Um, I I was limited a little bit on time because I had to get to Riga um, by, I, I had a, a time limit because I had to fly back okay. for, a, for one of my best friend's weddings in the UK to be his best man. And I'd already booked a flight from Riga. Um, so I decided, I, I decided not to do the North Cape mainly just because um, I thought it was going to be mm-hmm. a lot of extra time commitment because to ride all the way up and all the way back down, that was going to be sort of half the summer already gone. So I kind of decided instead to just ride. I rode up about as far as Trondheim, okay. which yeah. is only about a third of the way up. And then I rode across to Sweden and back down. Um, but I don't know. I, I've, with with like Norway, again, an amazing place to cycle. I was very fortunate with the weather while I was there, uh, which most people aren't, <laughs> being Norway. But... Um, I don't know. I know a few friends that have cycled all the way up to Nordcap and then back down through Finland. And I don't know. I'm I, as, as amazing as it looks. I feel quite pleased actually that I did stop around about Trondheim, because for me, I mean that that section sort of Trondheim as far down as Stavanger is um, just incredible. I mean that's that's the sort of fjord country, and um, I think 
further north, it starts the, the sort of more beautiful starts starts spreading out a little bit. Um, it starts it's sort of yeah, I think it's a little bit less concentrated. And you probably wouldn't have had the same experience through Sweden either if you had have gone Norway, Finland, because you would have hit you'd been like oh need to go to Estonia now. Yeah, well, I so, say I mean I would have been it would have been a real shame to miss the Baltics because actually I think the Baltics is a really underrated place to go cycle touring, particularly Estonia and Latvia because it's it's just amazing. It's um it's really got something of everything. I mean you can go road touring, you can go off road touring, the campsites, the fr- like free free campsites, especially in Estonia, are just unbelievable. It's 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 oh, so nice. easy to find them. They're really well set up. With you know fire pits and the locations are just incredible and um, yeah I have to say actually for me if I were to recommend a first time bike touring destination to someone you know one area of the world to go for your first ever bike trip I think I'd actually have to say the Baltics. No kidding, that's awesome because a lot of people say Thailand and they're always like, oh Thailand's easy, mm. it's warm, it's cheap and like, but yeah the Baltics are uh, they're nice. I've been to Latvia and Lithuania, I haven't been to Estonia. I'd really recommend it. It's fantastic. Um, I'd say of the three, actually, Estonia was probably my favorite from a bike touring perspective. Is, is that the one where you had the uh, the boardwalk that you had to go down kilometers and kilometers on this boardwalk? Yeah, there's a there's a trail, there's a route. It's actually a hiking trail, but it's sort of been converted into a, a bike, an, an off-road bikepacking route called the Swamp Thing Trail, um, which is uh, just incredible. It's quite, it's, it's sort of fairly tough. Um, but it's it's wonderful, and again, just the camping out there. I think for me, for me, a big part of the reason I would go with the Baltics over to somewhere like Thailand is, I suppose it depends what you're looking for. But for me, wild camping and, and camping in nature is a huge part of the appeal. I, I just I absolutely love just being able to sleep outside and have fires in the evening and just be out in the in the wild, you know, alone or with just a few people. And the Baltics, especially Estonia, really give you that. They give you that sense that you are, you know, you, you feel like you're out there by yourself and it's just so beautiful and so open and so much space. Whereas Thailand, as, as great as Thailand is, it's much more touristy. Yeah. You know, I mean, Thai, Thailand is, is very touristy. It's beautiful. But, I mean, wild camping is, is very hard to do in a lot of Thailand because the population density is so high. So it's, I think it's just a different kind of experience. Um, and it depends what you're looking for, I think. That's good to hear because I, I wouldn't have thought of that so much. Um, I was following somebody on Instagram and she's cycling the um, the Iron Curtain route. There's some new cycling route that follows the Iron Curtain and, um, uh, and it, looks, it looks epic and it goes through yeah, the, well. these Baltic countries and then down around Poland and stuff. It looks, looks sweet. Let's talk about the Middle East because not too many people spend time cycling through the Middle East and uh, other than Iran, a lot of people go there. Mm. But what were some of the challenges, and uh, mm, where did you yeah. go in the Middle East? So I haven't covered a lot of it. I, I flew into because um, when I got down to Athens, I, I again flew across the Mediterranean because I couldn't find a boat to the east side. So I flew mm-hmm. into Amman, the capital of Jordan, and um, so I, I rode down through Jordan. I also did a little detour through Palestine and Israel, and um, back across to Jordan. Um, so I, I haven't been to the sort of deeper Middle East of Oman, UAE, or Saudi Arabia. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, with your stamps in the passport, you were able to go into Israel? Or is, I think, is Jordan one of the few countries that allows it, or do you have it on paper? I know Jordan is absolutely fine with, with Israel. Um, the, the country which I was concerned about with, with regard to Israel is, uh, was a little bit later on my list, which is the Sudan. 
Um, with with the, with Sudan, you do have to be very aware of the Israeli stamp. But Jordan, Jordan, and Israel are on are on very good terms, at least for the moment. Uh, I'm not going to go into the sort of politics of there, but there is that's potentially things might flare up if uh, certain things happen that are concerning with the um, with, with Benjamin Netanyahu. But I'm not going to not going to go into um, region, regional politics. But you know, it's at the moment at least certainly it's it's absolutely fine. The border is open between Jordan and Israel, and you can cross quite comfortably. The way the Israelis do the border stamp is they will um, generally they'll just stamp a piece of paper rather than your passport because they are aware of the difficulties that the Israeli stamp can cause. Yeah, so it's actually no problem as long as you you have to sort of be aware. So in my case, what I had to do was uh, enter and leave via the same border crossing, and um, that way I wasn't ever stamped out of Jordan into Israel. Um, and so as far as my passport record shows I've never left I didn't leave Jordan okay. until I eventually crossed into Egypt so there's no sort of trace in my passport of, of ever having been to Israel uh, which was was important for me to make sure I had that because as I was planning on going to the Sudan where if you if they have if you have been to Israel and they can see that then they can and will refuse a visa so um, that was that was certainly a factor but no Jordan is is wonderful actually um, in terms of in terms of safety, I mean, a lot of people just hear they they think our oh, Middle East, oh, that's dangerous, but it's really not. It's not like that at all, actually. I mean, Jordan is very safe. It's um, it's it's absolutely a wonderful country. The people are fantastic. The food is incredible, um, and the landscapes in Jordan, particularly, are just incredible as well. There's a really wonderful off-road mm -hmm. route called the Jordan Bike Trail, which runs pretty much all the way through the country from the north down to the south. And I actually met the lady, uh, an Australian lady who was involved with building that. Like she uh, was one of the founders that was working there as an N with an NGO and started working and building this bike group uh, through, I don't know, partner organizations and stuff. They're, yeah. they're a nice group actually. I had a, I've got to have a chat with and one of the, one of the other guys um, who was also, I think they, a few of them pioneered it. And yeah, really nice, really nice group of people, and they've done a great job with that route. Actually, it's it's just brilliant. It goes through some of the main. I mean, the the main place that most people that know of Jordan will know about is is Petra, which is um, obviously very famous. And and the the, the bike trail goes right through Petra, right you know next to Petra. Um, so it takes in all the best spots. And Wadi Wadi Rum for me was actually even better than Petra, which is this fantastic desert in the south. Wadi Rum, it's the place which was used to film. Lawrence of Arabia, um, The Martian, I think Red Planet. It's um, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's, a, it's a very red Mars-like landscape of desert, and it's just unbelievable. If you to, to to cycle through, you kind of to to actually cycle through all of it, you pretty much do need a fat bike, or at least I say I did it on a plus bike, 29 plus, and I was able to ride pretty much all of it um, with with very very low pressure in the tires. I think anything less than that, and you'd be pushing your way through most of the desert. It's all sand tracks. It's all completely um, off, but it's just you know. It's I think possibly the most amazing place I've cycled through. And what time of what time of the year were you there? So I was there in December, December January. Okay. So it's the wind. Okay. It's the winter down there. So it is cold. Um, it was dropping to just below freezing at night in the desert. But it's actually in a way it's almost better to do it at that time of year maybe because it gets bloody hot in the summer. Whereas I, did, I didn't oh, I have that to deal with. Deadly. <laughs> From Jordan, did you cross and you went through the Sinai or? Yeah, so I got a ferry across the um, the Red Sea, across to Nuweiba in Egypt, 
and um, then I just sort of went down the coast. I had some issues with the Egyptian police who absolutely refused oh, yeah. to let me cycle anywhere in Sinai. Um, I had a, spent a whole day arguing with the police, and eventually I had to chuck my bike onto a bus through to Cairo. So I was very disappointed not to be able to actually cycle through Sinai. Um, but, uh, yeah, it wasn't to be. Uh, but I yeah, ended up getting a bus through the, uh, the peninsula and across straight to Cairo. And then uh, from Cairo, I uh, stopped for a bit and then headed south down through the Nile Valley um, down to Sudan. Um, and that was kind of, for me, the start of Africa. So I was going to ask you exactly that about Afri uh, Egypt. Sorry, police, absolute pain in the ass. <laughs> yes, it's, um, it's a strange thing. I mean, the, the Egyptian... Uh, authorities are very protective, overprotective of their tourists because their their industry, their economy is so dependent on tourism. And they had a few, they've had a, a couple of big crashes in the tourist industry in the last sort of five or ten years with the Arab Springs and then the revolution that they had. So they've had a lot of damage, and they, the tourist industry is now finally starting to recover. So they're very afraid that something bad will happen to a tourist, you know, a terrorist attack or just a random freak incident to uh, to sort of kill off a tourist and then everyone will stop coming because they become afraid again. So yeah. that is why, I mean, the, they identify bike tours as a high risk, which I suppose we are, uh, being on ground level. So once you get to a certain point south of Cairo, the if once the police know that you're there, they will pretty much force you to have compulsory police escorts all the way down through the Nile Valley, almost as far as the as far as Luxor, which is most of the way through Egypt down to Sudan. And it's very annoying, you know, you're, you're limited to main roads, you're, you're not allowed to go off and explore, you've got police escorts, they go from police station to police station, which are sort of 30 to 50 kilometers spread apart. So you get an escort for 30 kilometers, and then they stop at the police station, switch over to a new car, a new group, and then they follow you for the next 30k. And they're very impatient. I mean, they're, they're all nice guys. They're just doing their jobs, but they they kind of they don't really want to be babysitting you. And all they really want you to do is just to chuck your bike onto the car and just drive you through to the next checkpoint, so that they can pass you off to the next next uh, next group. So it's not a very nice sort of way to travel because you constantly feel like you're being hassled on. You've got this kind of annoying, impatient presence behind you. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's a shame. I mean, Egypt is an amazing country, amazing people, but I definitely couldn't say I recommend it as a cycling destination now just because of that factor. I mean, I for my first sort of four days or so out of Cairo, I, I, knew, I knew all about this, so I was very determined to try and avoid the police for as long as possible so I could actually get to see some of the real, kind of the, the more back country areas, see the more authentic, kind of less touristy areas. I just wanted to be away from the main roads. So I did a little kind of cops and robbers for the first four days where I was basically just avoiding any main road whatsoever. I was traveling mostly on donkey tracks, um, running you know, next to canals, a lot of pushing my bike, um, just through all these really remote places. It was just absolutely amazing uh, way to do it for the first three and a half days. Um, and then I, got, uh, I ran into a bit of trouble. I got robbed at gunpoint in the middle of nowhere by a group of... Like, oh, shit. 11, 12 guys. Um, like it's a, it's a whole long story I won't go into, but it's, I was, in the end, it was, I was very lucky. I didn't, um, I wasn't harmed. I didn't lose anything important. And so long story, but I got away with, with everything except my sunglasses. Uh, I'm not quite sure how I pulled that off, but anyway, I got, got away and it was quite disappointing to kind of actually realize that because I'd, I'd prior to that had this attitude that, oh, these police, they're overbearing, they're overprotective, 
they're making mm-hmm. a big fuss out of nothing. It's, it's all fine. Um, but obviously, once this had happened, I was sort of forced to concede that, okay, maybe, unfortunately, maybe the police do have a point. Maybe it isn't quite as safe as I assumed. Um, but overall, I still think, I don't think Egypt is a particularly dangerous country. I think, I mean, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, obviously, I, I was unlucky or un- unlucky in a way as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I carried on and I did end up running into the police the next day anyway. And uh, then I was from then on, I, I got stuck um, in this escort chain. Which uh, from that point on, the riding definitely wasn't fun in Egypt. Uh, it was just yeah. a kind of a conveyor belt, just trying to get through. Um, I guess we uh, we we kind of get used to this mentality that it's over dramatized. Everything's over dramatized. So we think when people say it's really dangerous and you need to have a police escort, we're thinking. It's probably not that dangerous. I remember living in Korea and I was going to go to China on a holiday and all the Koreans are like, you can't go to China. It's so dangerous. And I'm, yeah. I mean, China's not dangerous. <laughs> There's so many cops everywhere and they're good and they're they're safe. And you know, yeah, like, I'd say the only dangerous thing about China is the Chinese drivers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'd certainly, yeah, I, I think that's that's very much, that's certainly true in, in, in general, actually, in terms of travel, regardless, not just bike travel. I mean... I, for me, I mean, the, the first example for me that was was Papua New Guinea. I was told by virtually everyone that I talked to about Papua New Guinea that I was definitely going to get myself killed. I mean, there was a, a bloody betting pool going on with the expats in Port Moresby about how far I'd get before I got killed or wow. mugged or something. Like, I'm very pleased to say I lost a lot of people, a lot of money who bet against me even getting through. But I mean, that's how, that's that's consistently the case. I mean, I've just say just come through Africa and. A lot of people kind of go, oh, Africa, you know, wow, it's dangerous. But actually, I mean, I, I think with a few exceptions, I mean, the majority of Africa is is no more dangerous than any other continent. You know, I think okay. it's 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 just a lot of it's hyper, you know, it's, it's, it's over the top. It's people just think, they hear stories and they think this place is a bad place and things bad things happen there. I mean, the, the, the worst, um, the worst, victim of this in Africa for me out of the countries I went through is unquestionably the Sudan because a lot of people especially I think in North America they they hear Sudan and they go oh god Sudan that's the one of those terrorist countries isn't it that's that's you know sort of right. a, a dangerous country but I mean it, it couldn't be further from the truth actually I mean I think South I think South Sudan is now um, split and there's a civil war still yeah. sort of <laughs> yeah so I say South, South Sudan is I mean, it's still not really safe, that area close to South Sudan, because they still have this tension between the on the border there. And the west side of Sudan, Darfur, is also not um, really safe, because they've had this horrible genocide in, in Darfur. Um, but these mm-hmm. are t- only two areas of Sudan which are very much off on the sides of Sudan. And you couldn't, if you were beside you couldn't get anywhere near them anyway, because you'd run into a checkpoint and they wouldn't let you through. And the whole rest of Sudan, which is an enormous country, is so incredibly safe and it's full of some of the nicest people you can meet anywhere in the world. I mean, there's not many countries where you could go into a restaurant, you could leave your brand new iPhone on the table, walk away, and you'd immediately have someone come running after you and say, here's, you've, you've left your phone. You know, it's it's just, you know, incredible how kind and yeah. warm-hearted the people are there. Despite I think Japan, that, Japan and Korea would be the only two countries I would have ever thought that from. I didn't know this about Sudan. That's good to know. Yeah, Japan and Korea are the two. I, I was thinking of the same actually when I was saying <laughs> that. But yeah, it's it's just incredible. The people that like, they've been through 
such an unbelievably tough time in the last 50 years. I mean, everything, all the stuff that people hear about Sudan, they think, oh, it's a bad country. It all comes from the top. You know, it's all coming from mm. the leadership. The, other, the people in people in Sudan are just so incredibly wonderful, um, just so incredibly warm. But you tell someone, oh, I've been to Sudan, and a lot of people that don't know anything about it, they will, they will almost panic. So, oh, my God, that's, that's a dangerous place. But, I mean, I, I think Sudan is vastly safer than any... Uh, any other country I've ever been to. Okay, so well, things have gone completely to shit again now because they they ousted um oh, what was his name um ah uh, yes they they got rid of um their awful bloody president and actually no to be mm. fair I mean things are actually things are actually looking quite up now to be honest are they okay um no things things are looking up they, right as I was there actually um in in Khartoum the capital. Um, they actually were, they were setting, staging revolutions. Um, it was uh, Al Bashir is, is their former prime minister. Al Bashir, that's it. Yeah, who was in in control for for decades and completely destroyed the country and, and was you know facilitating this this horrible bloody genocide. And um, they were trying to get rid of him through peaceful protest. And not long after I left, they finally got rid of him. It was a military coup, but the military were basically the same. They took bar- it over. Yeah. Same the same bastards that he was. Um, they were on the same same page, but through months and months more of, of protests, and that the the protesters were just hanging in there, they refused to give up. And it's quite remarkable, really, for Sudan, because I say the Sudanese are such quiet, gentle, and no fuss people. So the fact that they were protesting day after day after day for months and months at a time really just tells you how bad things were. That these people were actually going to those lengths, but it was they were maintaining it was peaceful for them. The army were actually. Uh, on one one occasion, like they were, the army just instigated a a cull. They yeah. were just killing people in in the city and throwing their bodies into the Nile. But they hung in, and actually, finally, after months, they actually agreed a truce, um, which is a, a share a power sharing agreement between the, uh, the the military council and the uh, civilian uh, leaders. So finally, um, it's actually looking positive. We we'll have to wait and see oh, ha- good, yeah. what happens. But no, it's it's really a, for the first time it actually looks hopeful for Sudan. Wow. Oh, good, because the last I had last I had paid attention was the military took over and then they yeah. weren't changing much. You know, they were more of the same. So good to see it's changed. Um, from Sudan, you obviously I think went into Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, Kenya. Yeah. And- yeah, so Ethiopia, Kenya. I uh, went through uh, Kenya and Uganda. Um, for those two countries, it's pretty kind of special to me because when I set out again uh, to ride, I also decided I wanted to raise some money for a charity. Um, so yeah, I, let's talk about it. I was going to talk about it later, but I think now's a good time since we're right in those two countries. So yeah, so, yeah. So I, I decided I, I did a lot of shopping around in terms of which charity because obviously there's a million good causes in the world. You can't help all of them. But um, I decided the charity I'm, I'm writing for is called Build Africa which is a small British charity based in London, uh, working with sort of disadvantaged kids and schools and communities in Kenya and Uganda. So I was able to actually visit some of the projects that they have going on in those two countries, which was um, an amazing experience. And like, it was it's interesting because, I mean, for me, it was almost a bit nerve-wracking at first, actually going out and seeing these projects, because it's one thing to, to meet the people that are behind it you know, from a distance and to learn as much as you can about what they're actually doing and it's actually another to actually see it, you know, to see in the flesh mm-hmm. what they're actually doing. And for me, having just come through Ethiopia, I mean, it's, it's a difficult one to really 
get across to someone that hasn't seen it firsthand, but there's an enormous problem of dependence in Africa in terms of charities. A lot of very well-meaning charities go out and they actually cause way more problems than they solve because they don't address it in the right way. They just kind of throw money at the, the situation or they give, you, give them stuff. And they mean well, they're trying to help, but what ends up happening is they actually create a system where the people just assume that foreigners, you know, outside help is just going to fix their issues for them. Whereas okay. what, what really needs to happen to actually make it sustainable is, I mean, there are times when you need to give things and money, but ultimately you need to help people to actually be able to help themselves in, the, in a sustainable kind of long-term way mm -hmm. so that when the money dries up, when the charity is, leaves, things will continue getting better for them. It's not just going to be a case of they're doing okay, but only because there's money coming from the outside. That's, that's, right. not, that's not how you stop poverty. That's just how you create dependence. And I saw so much of that, particularly in Ethiopia, um, of, of that coming. Mean, it's, 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 it's countrywide in Ethiopia. And I think a lot of it has to do with, unfortunately, this obviously the famine and the Live Aid concert, which is an amazing thing. You know, lots of money raised from, from people all around the world. But the way it was dealt with, partly because of the Ethiopian government, which took a lot of the money or misdirected it to other things, and a lot of them, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't well handled. But because of that, I think Ethiopia is incredibly dependent now. And I was, part of me was a little bit worried that I was going to see something similar when I got into uh, Kenya to visit some of these projects. As there's a little bit of nerves there, like, oh God, what if this charity that I'm now aligning myself with is actually not doing it the right way? Um, but actually, I'm, I'm incredibly happy with the with, well, actually, uh, what I saw there. Um, it's, uh, it, was, it was such a relief to actually see it and so amazing to see what they're doing because their kind of approach is very much a sustainable kind of developmental and educational approach. So it's much more about trying to help people to actually help each other and to kind of build themselves up through educating people. I mean, a good example of this would be farming. I just assumed for the most part that if you're a farmer, you know how to farm. You know, you, you know how to do it, you know the right methods and techniques to get, so, right? to get the most out of your farm. But actually that's not the case at all. You know, because education is generally so weak. I mean, a lot of farmers don't know how to farm. Something like one one guy I met was like it's a really simple example. A guy had a few a few dairy cows, and just by teaching him how to the best way to actually care for them, the best way to the right feed to give them, he tripled the amount of milk that he was getting from each cow each day. Wow! And I mean that's that's an enormous increase. Like that's that's a life changing amount of of. Of, of improvement for these people. That's the difference between barely being able to get by and not only being able to get by, but also send their kids to school and be able to put aside a little bit of money as well. Um, I mean, that's you know something so simple. Like it takes no time at all to teach these people to do that, but they just have never had anyone show them. So yeah. it's yeah, it was it was really incredible to be actually be able to go out and see and just to visit schools that are you know the, the before and after basically. You know, schools that haven't yet been Work, you know, haven't been partnered with, and ones where they've been, you know, working together for some time, and uh, I was, yeah, incredibly humbling. Like I think it's, it's very, in a way, traveling around the world is quite gratuitous. But you know, if you're, if you're doing a, a very long trip, it's quite self-indulgent. I mean, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but for me, because it's such a long trip, there are times when I guess I think I'd feel like, okay, maybe this is a little bit. Maybe I should be doing something more worthwhile for the world at large. So I think for me, the the charity aspect is actually a huge help to me personally, and that it really helps me keep going, and it gives me a sense that actually it is more than just 
you know, me going on adventures and having a good time. But it also, yeah, it's 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 really good to know that you're helping. So, do you um, have a, a a particular amount that you're trying to raise by the end of the tour, or is it just kind of a do your best and yeah? See what happens? Well, I'm I'm sort of aiming for ten thousand pounds raised um, over the course of the uh, the ride. Okay. Um, I'm currently on I think a bit more than two thousand raised, so I've still got a long way to go. <laughs> um, but it's it's trickling in. Um, like for me, I found a good way to um, fundraise has been speaking events. So in, yeah. in in Africa, I've started doing some some speaking uh, engagements, which uh, have been definitely a good way to to raise money. Um, and it's you know I, I think it's it's good as well. It's it's nice to kind of meet people and, and talk about my trip. And then like I've, a few times, I've got messages from people that have then gone on and done done bike trips. So it's pretty cool that you can you know try and inspire other people to go out and go that's on cool adventures yeah. as well. And that's that's a really good feeling for me too. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used their race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Mangin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Well, I'm not sure if you're planning to come through Ottawa, but if you do, I could probably get you into a couple schools. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, my plan is the west side, but you never know. It's um, yeah. you absolutely never know. I definitely won't say never. Is Build Africa mostly focused on schools, or is it um, complete infrastructure? So it's the, the the sort of focus is primarily on schools, but it's also heavily community focused. And a big part of that is the way that the schools operate in Africa. I mean, in in a lot of the west, you know, you have a school, and it's it's the school, and that's that's all it really is. But I mean, yeah. a lot of a lot of parts of Africa, the school forms much more than just the school. It's a lot of time it's the it's the whole center of the community. So the, the buildings aren't just used for schools, they're used for community groups, they're used for okay. meetings, they're used for like, people use them for cooking, there's a lot of dormitories so a lot of people stay on the school. They use the sports facilities if there's a, a football pitch or something, the whole it, it's used by everyone. And even something as simple as water, um, I mean I was amazed at just how important access to clean drinking water is. I mean, that's something you just take for granted that yeah. you have access to water that you can drink. But I mean, it's 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 the different. I mean, there's lots of areas where they have to walk for three or four kilometers to get water every single day. And I mean, they don't have access to water to wash their hands after they go to the toilet. I mean, for, for, for girls, you know, sanitary towels aren't a thing. So that's another thing mm -hmm. that you need to provide. Um, so, I mean, the schools, one, one of the things that is like one of the first things that generally is put in is is access to either a borehole 
or a tank providing water and that is something that the whole community benefits from because they can then get their water from the schools as well oh i see so it's it's a major major part of a town when they get a school yeah it's it's huge um it's it's generally the center and the thing is because most of the most people living in the communities do have kids so it's a fantastic way to actually get to the whole community because you go into the schools and then you can actually interact with the parents as well and they're a crucial part of it so the, the whole thing about sustainability it's not just educating the kids it's educating the parents because there's so many cultural issues like a lot of uh, in a lot of these areas a big part of the reason my kids aren't going to school is because their parents just straight up don't see the value they just don't they don't mm -hmm. think it's important because a lot of the time they didn't go to school they weren't given access to an education so they just think well I'm fine my kids gonna grow up to be a farmer so what's the point it's a waste of time they could be in the fields working but they don't realize that actually you know by giving these kids an education it doesn't they can still be farmers but well they can they can be better farmers they can make you know they can actually go on and they can really make their standards of living so much better through just something as simple as education through developing That's their minds. A that's an interesting way of saying it because it's, it's not your usual argument where people say, yeah, now they can become doctors and lawyers. It's like, no, they could still be farmers. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just they can do it better, you know? They can yeah. use more engineering and ingenuity and to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, rea the reality is, I mean, it's anyone, anyone that says that, you know, in these rural parts of Africa, you know, if they get access to education, they'll all go on to move to the city and become high-flying lawyers, doctors, businessmen. I mean, that's just not realistic. Not everyone wants to be any of these things anyway. Like, there's nothing wrong with being a farmer, but it's just, you know, simple. Like, education is, is good for anyone, no matter what they're doing. Just because it's not all about learning you know, specific information. It's about the way that your mind develops as a child by having access to these things, by challenging and thinking and, and learning. And it actually, it, it influences the way you actually grow physiologically. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's huge. And just teaching parents the value of that alone is not easy. And it's something that is often overlooked. But if you don't do that, if you don't get the parents on board, then it's never going to work. You're never going to get them going to school because they have to be supported both at school and at home as well and that's easier said than done it's um and in a lot of cases i mean for example maasai in kenya there's a lot of maasai areas and i mean for women particularly for girls i mean it's it's completely ridiculous to maasai to send girls to school it's it's a bizarre idea i mean there's there's so many issues of gender down there i mean female genital mutilation is also a massive issue down there but um Educating the, the parents is, is a huge part of it and you you get to them, you, you're able to interact by going through the schools because they are just they're the center of the community so it's, it's such a great way to get in and to be able to work with the whole community. It's interesting because um, I lived in Malaysia a long time and you know it's not so different. Yeah. There's, I lived in the rural parts of Malaysia and you know lots of farmers keep their daughters home because their role is going to be to marry somebody, work in a kitchen, work right. in the kitchen, have babies, and they don't need an education for that. And there was a constant struggle mm. between the communities and the rural farmers to get their kids to go to school. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and on that same note, part of the education thing is like 95% of women have been, have, have been a, I'll say, a victim to female circumcision of some sort of, to yeah. some sort of degree. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's such a big obstacle because you're not just you're trying to change generations of culture I mean of, of you know of, of just assumption and it's it's not an easy thing to do but 
you've got to try, you know, and, and I think going through the schools is, is the best way to do that because they can see the results. I mean, they can see that it's working. And by getting parents invested, it, it, it benefits the whole community, not just the kids. And it's, yeah, it, 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 was, I was, it was an amazing experience, actually, just being able to see it. I felt very privileged, and it definitely made me more motivated to actually, I mean, it's one thing, as I say, learning about it and talking about it, but having actually seen it and the reality and seeing what, you know, the, the challenges, it, it definitely puts things in perspective, you know. I mean, from a, from a sort of a personal sort of point of view in my own life, you know, with writing, there's times when you can grumble to yourself and you can go, oh, God, mm -hmm. okay, right now this, this headwind sucks. This, this is rubbish. What am I doing here? But, you know, the, the challenges that some people are facing, the lives that some people in this world are having to lead, I don't know, for me it made me feel very petty. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, uh, we are so incredibly privileged just to, to have the chances we do. Can we jump forward a bit? I want to ask you, how is cycling in Rwanda? Because I know they're a huge cycling nation. <laughs> so Rwanda, Rwanda I only went through fairly briefly because um, I came in from Uganda and the, I, I sort of cut the corner because my visa was running fairly low. Oh, okay. got, Rwanda is beautiful. Um, I don't know. I So R Rwanda, I have to say I didn't love cycling in Rwanda, actually, which might surprise you. The landscape is stunning and... Mm -hmm. The people are very nice. The issue I have with Rwanda, which for me I think was compounded by the fact that I just spent quite a lot of time in Uganda as well, is just the population density. Um, okay. I think for me, I think Rwanda has got to be the most densely populated country I've ever cycled through. Oh, it's really? Just extraordinary how many people there are. And by the time I got to that state, I think it, I think really it depends on. I think this is this is true of most of Africa actually, apart from maybe. Sudan and maybe Namibia and Botswana, but um, for a lot oh, in southern Africa, I suppose. But anyway, a lot, a lot of Africa, the population density is so huge. You know, you're always near someone, and this is incredible. Doubly so in Rwanda. You know, you're never. I think my first okay. two or three days cycling in Rwanda, I spent a grand total of something like 30 seconds when I wasn't within sight of another human being. It's just unbelievable. Um, and the difficulty is that. Um, because you're such a strange thing, you know, as a as a as a white guy riding through Rwanda on a on a bicycle, you're very very conspicuous, and they're very people are very curious. They want to know what you're doing, and that's all completely fine and normal and to be expected. But when it's day after, you know, when it's constant, like literally wherever you go, you're being, you know, people want to know. They want you to stop. They want to talk to you. They kind of follow you. They're constantly shouting, "Hey, Mzungu, stop! What are you? Where are you going?" Um, and it's it's like it's it would it would be fine if you were doing it for a little while, but when it's like months of this throughout a lot of Africa, it starts to become really yeah. tedious. Um, and especially, I mean, for me, I'm I think it depends maybe what kind of person you're like. I'm I'm I guess I suppose like a little bit of I guess I'm a bit introverted in that sense, and that when I spend a lot of time around people all the time. I, it just sort of drains me. Like I need, I need my space at the end of the day just to kind of recharge. And you need your wild camping quiet. spot. That's yeah. Like and, I think yeah. for me, like I, I love people and I love being around people. When it's non-stop, day after day after day, for me, it just starts to slowly drain me a little bit. I just start okay. getting to stage where I'm just like, oh, I just need, I need some, I need a bit of a break. Um, and Rwanda is definitely the the toughest case of that because you're Rwanda and Ethiopia, I think. 
um, but you're you're never alone, like not for a second. Everyone's nice, like everyone means well, like everyone's just curious, and it's you know everyone's lovely, but it's just after a while that starts to really wear you down, uh, and you get to a stage where you're just like, oh god, I just want to be alone right now. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'd say Rwanda would be an amazing place to go if you just went for a week or two, or if you hadn't just cycled through a lot of Africa already, particularly coming from the north. But yeah, for me, I was definitely pretty drained by then. Like, I was really ready for Tanzania, where it was a lot more sparsely populated, and where I had a bit more space, and where I could also wild camp again. So I'm wondering, is that why a lot of the cyclists seem to go from Tanzania into Zimbabwe and then towards Namibia? Is that just because of the population density and kind of getting away from it? Or what is the reason (laughs) towards that? Because you're not the first. I've seen a few people that... Yeah, I think, I mean, I've spoken to quite a few bike tours that have gone through Africa, and... Most of them that I have spoken to have come with a similar sort of feeling. After a while, it's just a bit too much. Um, but again, I think it depends what kind of person you are. Like, I have a few friends that are still in Africa that are the opposite, that absolutely love that kind of crazy energy and the constantly having people around and that thrive off that. I so say I think certain, some, some types of people just love being around people all the time. And mm-hmm. they just... I mean, uh, my, my sister is a good example of this. I have a younger sister who came and rode with me for... Uh, just a few weeks in in Lithuania and Poland, and she's the opposite. She, you know, like we were going through some remote areas, and I was completely at ease in these remote areas. But more and more, she was getting to the stage where she was just like, "God, I just need to be around people. I need people around me." And you know, we got to a city, and immediately she was just energized of, "Yes, there's people everywhere." Whereas I'm the opposite. Um. You know, I I'm the opposite. Like I I love being around people for a while, and then after it's been a while, I kind of feel like, "Hey, I need my I need my quiet now. I need my." my remoteness and I think for anyone that's more of the more like my sister in that sense more kind of loves people all the time and doesn't get drained by that then I think for those kind of people Africa is actually a better place to cycle than for someone like me like I mean for me I'm now in South America and I've got all these really remote Andean mountain passes and roads like very high up coming up and for me that's that's in a way that's my comfort zone that's my happy place you know remote not seeing anyone for a few days like I'm very at ease with that whereas the constantly being around people after a while that definitely starts to drain and I think yeah that might definitely have something to do with why a lot of people do turn through you know they take the western route through Botswana and then Namibia because after you have come all the way through East Africa you kind of feel like you need a bit of a detox you need some peace and quiet um, but I don't know, part of it might be that, but then part of it also might be that it minimizes, at least this time, the, at the moment, it, it means you have less cycling to do in South Africa. And a lot of people are ah. quite a little bit concerned these days about safety in South Africa, um, which is, I think, again, I think the danger element there is also overblown, like it is pretty much everywhere. I think it's not as dangerous as a lot of people make out, but the danger isn't made up. There are, there are definitely issues. I mean, South Africa is going through an incredibly tumultuous time at the moment. Okay, so coming down through Namibia, then you just, you have a quite short route to get to Cape Town, yeah? Yeah, it's only sort of, I think, a week or so of riding through from uh, from the Namibian border down to Cape Town. So it's it's the shortest slice that you could probably do um, in, in South Africa. So, I mean, to be fair, I mean, that's uh, that, that probably takes something away from Namibia, though, which is in itself an absolutely incredible country. I think, I mean, Namibia for me is probably, oh, it's a difficult one, but it's it's probably, or at least possibly, the most beautiful country in Africa, I would say. It's, um, 
Really? If not the world. I mean, it's just it's just an unbelievable place, Namibia. It's 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 a wonderful country. I mean, Namibia is so worth seeing. So I don't think it's just to avoid people or to avoid South Africa. I mean, Namibia is is worth going to in its own right. It's such an amazing country. The landscapes, the wilderness. Um, yeah, it's just just incredible. So I would ask countries you loved the most or enjoyed the most in Africa. I mean, I guess Uganda and Kenya have a huge part there because of your charity. I'd say from a from a cycling perspective. The, the country I'd go back to first would be Kenya. Um, I, I think Kenya is just a wonderful place to, to ride. It's got so many off-road opportunities as well. The people are great. The landscapes are great. The wildlife is wonderful. Kenya is, is really just, I would say probably, if I had to choose my favorite country in Africa, I'd say Kenya. Um, second, in terms of riding, I would probably go with Namibia second. Because, again, Namibia is okay. just wonderful. But in terms of the people, Sudan, uh, something really special about Sudan. It's just an amazing place. And being able to wild camp alone in the Sahara is uh, just such a privilege. It really just ranks as one of the greatest sort of experiences in my life, just being able to just wild camp alone in the sands. You know, it's just, um, just unbelievable. What was uh, the most you got off the beaten path? Or where were you when you were like most remote away from people or um, somewhere special that tourists don't generally go? Um, oh, Papua New Guinea for sure. Um, like I mean I, 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 almost nobody goes to Papua New Guinea at all in general and very few. I mean by bicycle it's yeah I mean Rob Lilwall who um, wrote the book uh, Cycling Home from Siberia, he went through Papua New Guinea um, and I know of one other guy who took a bicycle to Papua New Guinea, a friend of mine, but he didn't actually do any cycling there. He just bust through. But beyond that, I mean, I know of almost no one that cycled. I know okay. that cycled in Papua New Guinea. I mean, for good reason. It's not a very sensible place to take a bike. Um, but certainly, yeah, Papua New Guinea is is the most out there country I've ever ridden through by far. And I can't say I'd really recommend taking a bike there. But um, beyond that, I mean, the parts, I mean, Tibet is pretty cool, but I wasn't like crazy remote there. Um, I think the most remote I'm ever going to go is actually coming up this, the next sort of few months up in the, uh, the high Andes. There's, there's a few routes up there that I'm very excited to ride. Uh, up in the high Puna, there's, there's sort of routes that are, you know, three, three weeks worth of food you need to carry in one session because there's nothing. And being on a bikepacking bike, you can actually get to places that a lot of the tourists don't even go on. Huh? Oh, I'm, I'm not expecting to see many bike tourists on the, the route that I'm taking. The only place I might see quite a few is probably the first little bit from Patagonia up through the Carretera Austral. There's probably going to be loads of bike, to, bike tourists there. Mm -hmm. But once I get past that area, I think uh, there might be some other backpackers, uh, bike packers that are on similar setups. Um, but I think it's going to be... Yeah, pretty off the beaten track, which is I say very excited for that. <laughs> well, I guess that's uh, that kind of takes us right to the end because I was going to ask you about your your route through South America, but that's it up through the Andes and away from everybody. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Well, I mean, I'm in I'm in Rio right now. Just uh, just been in Rio for the last few days, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and uh, arrived um, in Sao Paulo from Cape Town last week. And then we um, I'm, I'm traveling with a, another guy, an English guy who I spent the last two months in Africa riding down with. But the guy I'm running with, Craig, his, uh, I think his handle on Instagram, Craig's Travels on Tread. Uh, give him a follow. <laughs> he's uh, he's, uh, he's with me now. And uh, we've just taken a coach up from Sao Paulo to Rio. 
with our bikes, and then we're going to turn around and ride south down the coast through um, through Brazil, Uruguay, and then down to Buenos Aires in Argentina, and then fly from there to Ushuaia. And then, yeah, okay. the plan from there is spend the next probably next year and a half, give or take, getting from Ushuaia to the U.S. I'm sort of planning on hitting the USA in spring 2021 and then spending six months or so in the U.S. and then getting up to Canada. And I think the moment my ideal plan would be to try and get a work visa for Canada and spend the winter working in maybe Vancouver and uh, then head up to Alaska in the spring because I'm not feeling hugely motivated to ride up there in the winter. <laughs> I mean, my, my best guess at the moment is I have about another four four to five years left before I get back to the UK at the end of this trip. So at the moment, I think I should be back in, I think, when sort of the end, towards the end of 2023, I think is the plan. That's a long-term goal. <laughs> yeah, God knows what I'll do afterwards. <laughs> That's pretty far away to be thinking of what you're going to do, but do you yeah. think it'll be adventure-related? or? I, again, I'm not really thinking about it yet. I mean, a lot of people ask if I'm planning on writing a book, which I, I suppose I probably will, but I mean, it's, it's still far enough away. I mean, a lot can happen in a year, and traveling by bicycle, I mean, or traveling in general, but particularly by bike, I mean, it's a year it feels like five years because so much happens in that year I mean you meet so many yeah. people so many places so any any moment some crazy some opportunity could come up I could meet someone I could fall madly in love anything could happen and so know. for me planning four or five years away just I don't know it just seems like a waste of, of, of brain energy because I think I'll be a completely different person by then so any plans I make are unlikely to survive the uh, the gauntlet of the next sort of the next sort of four years on the road. Have you ever felt any burnout? Like, do you ever have moments where you're like, oh, I just need to get away from this and stop? Or... God, yes. Yeah, certainly. Um, I said, I mean, my first, after that first year when I was getting back, the last couple of months running through winter, I was so completely done with it. Um, and so I swore, swore off bike touring. But, um, and that didn't last long. I've had, I've, I've had sort of this, what I sort of think of as road fatigue, which has happened, I've got it a few times. I think when I was, when I around about the time I'd made it to the end of Europe and I got to sent, sort of mid the Middle East and you and in coming into Cairo, I, I definitely felt it then because I'd been pushing quite hard through the Balkans to get down to Greece in, okay. by 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 the end of you know by the start of winter because I was conscious of the seasons, and I was definitely feeling a bit yeah a bit burnt out then and. Um, I also felt a bit burnt out towards the end in Africa. The last, the last month, of particularly running through Africa, I definitely felt quite over it, and I felt like I wanted to be, I, I wanted to stop, and I wanted to. I sort of had, it, I'd had enough of Africa by that point. I sort of felt like I wanted to be moving on. I was already looking ahead to South America, but I mean, for me, I've definitely learned like when I get to that point where I feel like I just need, I'm not enjoying it anymore. If I feel like I'm just having to go, I'm forcing myself to keep going for the sake of doing it. For me, like if I get to that stage, the, the the key is just to stop. You know, find find some place where I can just stop for a few weeks or even a month. I feel like two two weeks isn't quite enough, but once you start getting to sort of three or four weeks, for me that's always long enough just to kind of recharge. And I, you know, if, if like Cape Town for example, recently I stopped, and when I got there, I put my bike away and I looked at it in disgust, and I didn't. I was like, God, I don't want to even look at my bike for a few weeks, but. You know, after about two weeks, I'm starting to go. Okay, I'm sort of still not really ready to start cycling again, but I feel like I'm nearly there. And now it's been um, more than a month actually. It's been I think nearly five weeks since I arrived in Cape Town, um, having stopped. Oh, okay. And now I am absolutely desperate to get back on the bike. 
I mean, I'm I'm so incredibly motivated. I can't wait. I'm going to be in Rio for a few more days and then hitting the road, and I'm just so charged with this desire to to be riding again. And for me, you know, if I ever get to that stage where I just don't want to be riding, I'll I'll stop riding for a bit, let myself recover, let my wanderlust come back, because there's just I don't think there's any point in forcing it. You know, if you're just riding to, for the sake of riding, it, it defeats the purpose for me, at least. I mean, I'm not I'm not riding to to break any records. I'm yes, I'm riding to try and hit a goal, but ultimately the goal for me is very much secondary. You know, if I if I ever got to the stage where I was just straight up miserable, if I just wasn't enjoying it at all, and I'd stopped for a few months and I still wasn't enjoying it at all, I wouldn't keep going just for the sake of doing it. Like, there's no point to me in putting myself through misery. Like, I think. You know, life's too short to do things that aren't good for us, that aren't, aren't fun, that aren't, you know, what we actually want to be doing. But mm -hmm. for me, a few weeks off is always the, is enough. And ultimately, yeah, I'm still so motivated. And for me particularly, the next two continents are the two that I've actually been most excited for. Um, so, yeah, I'm unbelievably stoked for the next two years on the road. Sweet. I have two last questions. Uh, one came back to me. I wanted to ask you earlier, and it slipped my mind. Is on a bike packing setup. Where do you carry your tent? Yeah. So it's actually changed a little bit. I've actually like re revised my setup a little bit since uh, since Cape Town. So previously, I had my tent in a handlebar harness, uh, like a, a handlebar roll on the front. Oh, okay. Which was, I had it up there. Mm -hmm. Which was lumped in. Like I had uh, I had the the Revelate Designs harness system. So. Um, I had the the sort of the dry bag which I had all my like sleeping bag mats spare clothes and that kind of stuff and sleeping bag that was all on in the in the dry bag and then I also had this tent you know attached in there. Um, now I've actually changed the system so I've actually got rid of that harness system and I've got this um, it's a company called uh, Roadrunner Bags I think they're based in okay. Seattle um, but it's basically a, a bag that's attached to the bars and it's got a roll top dry bag so it means I can access it on the go without having to actually detach it it's much easier to get to so ah. I've sort of switched to now I have um, a backpack on my rear rack a waterproof like a roll top backpack so that contains my sleeping bag my tent my mat my clothes and basically everything that I don't need during the day goes on the rack and then everything that I need quick access to all my food um, my pot my you know, gear that now goes on the front because it's much easier to get to it quickly. Because um, one of the disadvantages of the bike packing setup is convenience uh, in terms yeah. of in terms of day to day, particularly if you're using a seat pack um, rather than a rack because they're kind of a pain in the ass to open and close because you have to make sure they're really tight each time. They're not very convenient to get to in a hurry, and they take it. They're a bit more awkward to pack. Generally, with with the bike packing setup because you've got less space. You've got to kind of play Tetris every morning to get everything packed up really tightly. And for a few weeks, that's fine. Even for a few months, that's still fine. But over a long period, that starts to kind of, it's just a bit of a nuisance. So for me, like a lot of the changes I've made to my setup now are just geared towards just ease of, ease of life, you know, just making it quicker to pack mm -hmm. up in the mornings, making it a lot easier. Um, so yeah, now the setup I have now, I haven't really road tested much yet because I've say so I haven't really done any riding since putting it on there. But yeah, I I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist with kit and I'm a total gear nerd. So I'm always looking for you know what can I improve, what can I make better, and how how could this be done differently? 
So after two and a half years of cycling and min-maxing, trying to figure out where I'm at, I think now I might finally have my perfect setup. But awesome. I've said that. I've also said that before, so <laughs> we'll have to wait and see how it actually goes. But at the moment, it looks really good. So the new bag, the 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 roll top, that's on the front or at the back? On the front, yeah. It's attached to the handlebars, but it's uh, it's okay. it's rackless. It's yeah, it's uh, just attached uh, straight to the handlebars. And I did see that your thing, your your system changed a bit. At one point, you had a um, a seat post bag on, and then all of a sudden, I saw in some pictures you had a, a rack on your bike with a a bag mounted on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've uh, I'm denied on this one a lot. I, I actually love the seat pack in general. I think it's 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 a great piece of kit. Still got mine, but for me, for longer trips, I think for, for a short trip, I think the seat or or if you know that you're not going to need much capacity, then a seat pack is 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 perfect. But I tend to like going on really remote routes where I need to carry a lot more food and water. Mm-hmm. And for that, I think the seat pack just isn't doesn't make sense because. Like the, in terms of the weight difference between a lightweight rack and a lightweight backpack and a seat pack, it's actually very minimal. I mean, like a, a seat pack is going to be sort of four or five hundred grams. A rack is going to be my my rack is five hundred grams and my backpack is four hundred grams. So I've got like an extra four or five hundred grams of weight, but right. I get like twenty liters more capacity. I get the, the option to strap extra things onto the back. And also the advantage for me of having a backpack on the rack is that if I need to hike a bike, I can just wear the backpack, and I've saved you know a lot of weight on the bike. Oh, good point. And I also have a backpack with me. Um, so yeah, I, I a few people have messaged me about the whole you know backpack on the rack concept and how it works. And actually, I, I think it's I think it's perfect. Um, I think I think it's just an I for me it's an ideal compromise because it gives you enough capacity that you're not constantly struggling to fit things in. But it also is still pretty light and it's streamlined and it's you know it's it's. And you have a rain cover for it. Around, you just throw you know, it over it if it's raining. Or? Well, the the one I had before, yeah, I did. But actually, since then, I've I've got a new uh, backpack from uh, Alpkit in the UK, which is a, a waterproof backpack. So it's it's just fully waterproof in itself. It's just like a dry bag back. Um, so now it's uh, easy. I don't have to worry about putting any covers on. It's just waterproof as ah, it is. Ah, nice. And uh, the last question I was going to ask between the other four <laughs> was uh, how long are you going to be riding with Craig? So, yeah, I'm not totally sure. We're going to be together, I think, at least until Buenos Aires, which will be about a month, I think, down to Buenos Aires. And then after that, we're going to just sort of see how we go. Uh, I mean, I, I, he's a really good dude. It's great traveling with him. It's, it's fun for me to have company because I've done almost all of my riding solo. Um, it's only really the last couple of months and one or two little bits where I've had company, uh, so it's yeah. quite cool for me to be riding with someone. You know, we're, we're you know getting on great. It's all good. The only reason we might end up temporarily at least splitting is potentially down in Patagonia, and for those kind of very remote sections, is just purely down to bikes and setups because he has a, a more conventional sort of touring setup. He's just made a few changes to try and make it because he wants to be riding these routes that I'm going to be riding but and I've no doubt he could ride them um, but it's just a question of at a certain point it becomes no fun for him if he's having to yeah. kind of lug his bike constantly through tough terrain at a certain point it's not worth doing because it's not fun um, so we'll see how we go if he's if he's enjoying it and he's able to sort of ride these then I'm sure we'll stay together for at least a fair bit longer but if not we might 
um, meet sort of detour and maybe meet up later somewhere further down the road. But it's nice when with with two people that are traveling independently. Like we both started our trips alone, so if we ever do decide, oh, okay, we'll just split for now. It's it's no stress, you know. We can just go our own ways and maybe meet up later, um, which is definitely I think an advantage for starting alone as opposed to starting in a group. Because if you start with someone else, mm. there's much more pressure to actually stay together, and you feel a bit bad if you were discussing splitting. But yeah, we'll see how we go. Well said, Tristan. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think it's uh, it's time to cut this off. I need to eat some dinner. I'm famished. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Great talking to you as well, Chris. Amazing. Great. Talk to you again soon and uh, have a safe ride out of um, Rio. Oh, thanks very much for having me. All the best. Thank you so much to Tristan for taking this time to sit with me and tell me about his adventures and his journeys. It was really great to to hear the differences and the changes from being a traditional bike tour to what we would now call a bike packer. I hope you guys enjoyed the show, and if you did, feel free to leave a comment on whatever podcast app you're using, uh, as well as liking it and subscribing. Those things help so much. You have no idea. And if you have any comments you want to send me personally, you can do that through my website at www.biketouradventures.com or just email me at info at biketouradventures.com. Also, I've recently been added to Feedspot. It's a website that you can go to to read your favorite blogs, podcasts, news websites, YouTube channels, and RSS feeds. And I was added to it as the number two podcast that you must follow in 2019 for bike touring. So thank you to all my listeners for helping me get this ad to Feedspot. And thank you to Feedspot for reaching out and uh, letting me know about that. That's great. Um, Next week's episode is yet to be determined. So I will let you know as soon as it happens. So it could happen in the next week or two. So there might be a little break. Anyways, keep on pedaling and have a great day. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.